0: Hello, POSNA members and guests. Welcome to our podcast covering your hand subspecialty day session, part of the 2020 POSNA Virtual Annual Meeting Series. This is your host, Craig Lauer from the University of North Carolina. I'm here today with our session moderators, Lindley Wall from Washington University St. Louis Children's Hospital and St. Louis Shriners. Hello. Uh, as well as Michelle James from UC Davis and the Sacramento Shriners Hospital. Hello. So three papers have been selected from the session to be highlighted and we'll have the opportunity today to go into a little more detail with those authors. Their full narrated presentations are available online. But I'll give a short recap and then we'll jump into the discussions. So first we have Dr. Roger Cornwall presenting for his research group at Cincinnati Children's Hospital on contractures and brachial plexus birth injury, a problem of muscle length, not muscle strength, translating findings from an animal, animal model to humans. So in this study, Dr. Cornwall and colleagues build on their findings on the etiology of contractures in the mouse model and investigate the characteristics of human subjects with contractures due to brachial plexus birth injury. They found that contractures were associated with decreased muscle length, measured by overstretched sarcomeres and decreased strength analogous to their observations in the mouse model. The implications of this work could be far reaching. So to discuss further, I'll now turn it over to our moderators, Dr. Wall and Dr. James.
1: Hey, Roger. I have been very lucky to watch your research progress over time and it's been fantastic. I think what you've added has just, um, it's been very interesting and absolutely thought provoking. Um, You used the biceps um, muscle as sort of your model to look at the contractures here, sort of in more of a clinical way. Can you kind of take us from this point and see what's your next step? What are you going to do next? Sure. So I think
2: actually to just to back up for a, a little bit, I, I think the the focus on the elbow is one uh, as opposed to the shoulder because it's a simpler joint and it's a, uh, it's a conceptually easier contracture to think about. Uh, whereas at the shoulder, there are many muscles acting, some of which are innervated and some of which are denervated, but in the elbow, when the elbow flexors, the biceps and the brachialis, are denervated and paralyzed initially, how would you get an elbow flexion contracture in that situation? And so that paradoxical contracture has focused our attention on the problem of muscle length, whereby muscle denervated at birth does not grow normally in length, ending up relatively short, and that's causing the contracture. And so we've been able to replicate that in a mouse model of neonatal brachial plexus injury, as you know, uh, where the muscle, instead of being contracted, actively contracting with strength to cause the contractures, the muscle is overstretched, and the sarcomeres within the muscle are overstretched, uh, and uh, and so it, it makes a lot of sense in the in the mice. And now, especially that we've elucidated some of the biology behind it, and have a class of medications that can preserve longitudinal muscle growth and contractures it's pretty exciting and, and it would be great to be able to translate that to humans. Although the, the naysayers will say, yeah, that's mice, they're quadrupeds. How, you know, how can you translate this to humans? So that's why it's a really important step to to measure muscle length and muscle strength in humans. And indeed, we found the same overstretch of these muscles that are causing contractures in the, the elbow flexors. Initially, we were looking at the biceps and the brachialis uh, with this, this new device that, uh, that we adapted from, uh, collaborators at Stanford, uh, but we had some trouble getting reliable measurements as deep as the brachialis, so that's why the biceps focus. But indeed, the, the biceps muscle is too short, it's overstretched in its so-called contracted position, and it's too weak. And so what, what I think this does is two things. Number one, it, it validates the, the mouse model that we have, where we see the exact very shockingly similar graphs and images of the sarcomeres between the mice and the humans validates the use of the mouse model for more translational work in terms of uh, understanding the biology and and refining our biological targets. Uh, And number two, it it makes us stop and think about what we're doing to all of the contractures around the the body in these neuromuscular conditions like CP and brachial plexus birth injury where we are operating under the assumption that the muscle is too strong and so we're weakening muscles either with Botox or by cutting them where in fact the muscle is actually just too short. And so we need to think a little bit more carefully about lengthening muscle rather than weakening it. And how we do that in practice is a little bit tricky to to conceptualize, but I think at least it's an important uh, mindset that we need to change.
3: Roger, this is Michelle. I, I have followed your work also for a long time, and I love that you think out of the box, you know, and that that you're looking at something that looked like it was a problem of a muscle being too short, but we we were wrong about the reasons that the muscle was too short. The fact that denervation early in life retards growth in brachial plexus, birth palsy, or other conditions where that might happen. How do you translate that to cerebral palsy, which uh, is a neuromuscular condition, but by my understanding of it, doesn't involve denervation on like a, a root level?
2: That's a fantastic question. So first of all, very little, almost nothing is known about the regulation of longitudinal muscle growth from the from the muscle standpoint or from the nerve standpoint. We don't even know where the sarcomeres are added within a muscle, if they're interstitial or if they're at the ends or, or whatnot. And so the, the mechanisms by which this the, the normal growth occurs are, are still being sorted out. And so we're trying to sort that out simultaneously with what is perturbing it or how it's perturbed in, in denervation. But interestingly enough, well, when we think about uh, upper versus lower motor neuron lesions, such as CP versus brachial plexus birth injuries, we're thinking about it from a motor standpoint. And I'm sure you've seen children with, uh, with C5, C6 root avulsion injuries to contractures. And we've also replicated sympathetic and afferent innervation of the muscle from the preganglionic root avulsion injury. We have additional data that are implicating sympathetic innervation as being the most important uh, form of innervation regulating muscle growth uh, rather than efferent innervation, at least in length. And so there is certainly an autonomic component to cerebral palsy uh, that could link the two. But I I think we just need to get out of the, the paradigm of thinking of muscle as a contractile unit only, and only powered by an efferent neuron. It's a much, much more complicated neuromuscular interaction and a much more complicated organ than I think we've, we've given it credit for. But we also know that there's a, a critical window of neonatal development uh, during which perturbations of innervation will cause permanent problems. And so that's probably the easiest link between CP and brachial plexus birth injury, and in then it occurs in between the third and fourth trimester of, of muscle development, the fourth trimester being the first three months ex utero.
1: Okay, thanks. So kind of going back, um, thank you for explaining it to a level that I'm sure we all understand beautifully. Um, but I had a question. So what are you doing now? So you're, you have that, you've established that you've got these contractures that's based more on the sarcomere. What's sort of your next step? I mean, are you um, looking for medications to treat this or what's sort of your goal?
2: Yeah so ideally we would we would want a medication that we could give to these children during the time during that critical neonatal period to trick the muscle into thinking it's innervated to grow normally in length so that when it is re-innervated, either by spontaneous recovery of the, the neurons or by surgical reinnervation that the muscle has not experienced that denervation stage and therefore is able to resume growth thereafter and so fortunately in our mouse model we've identified that the problem with muscle growth in length is one of proteostasis, so protein degradation versus protein synthesis, and that it's an elevation of protein degradation. And if we give proteasome inhibitors that that inhibit the main pathway of protein degradation, we can actually preserve longitudinal muscle growth in de-innervated muscle and completely prevent contractures. So our next steps, rather than just translating that directly to humans because widespread proteasome inhibition is actually quite toxic, our next steps are to identify in a, in a much more molecularly specific way, what switch is flipped in the denervated muscle to change that balance of protein degradation and protein synthesis? How is that regulated? There are many known regulators and we're interrogating those. And then we're also approaching it from the nerve side. Which neuron is it that's relevant? And I mentioned the, the potential role of sympathetic, but we have to rule out afferent innervation as well. And the molecular connections between sympathetic and afferent innervation with the muscle so we're approaching it from the muscle end and the nerve end to try to find the, the a much more molecularly specific switch that we can then flip medically. Because ideally we want to only affect the de muscle with any medication that we give and we can't do that just by local injections into the muscles. As we know, there are widespread muscles involved throughout the limb and, and really to, to get the muscle longer you have to get every single fiber in that muscle longer and you can't do that just by injecting into the muscle so, ideally, we want to give something systemically that will primarily target the innervated muscle.
1: Great, thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Cornwall. Um, we're going to move on. So, next, we have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Benin Dalla Ali from Great Ormond Street Hospital uh, for Children in London with his presentation of carpal tunnel syndrome and mucopolysaccharidosis type 2, Hunter syndrome, and the effect of enzyme replacement therapy. This was a retrospective review of carpal tunnel symptoms and response to treatment in 17 pediatric patients with MPS type 2. So in this study, they found that the symptoms of carpal tunnel, which very commonly develop in mucopolysaccharidosis type 2, only developed in 50% of the 10 patients who had normal nerve conduction studies at presentation and were on uh, enzyme replacement therapy. The six patients who presented with abnormal nerve conduction studies remained symptomatic and did end up requiring treatment despite enzyme replacement therapy. So they conclude that enzyme replacement therapy may help in patients who do not yet have symptoms, but those who are already symptomatic with abnormal studies, it should not be expected that the uh, therapy will alleviate their carpal tunnel symptoms. Again, there's lots of interesting information here, so I'll let the moderators go into a little bit more detail.
1: This is uh, Lindley Wall again. This is a great cohort, and I, we really appreciate you getting this information out there. Um, I had a question with regards to do you think that the enzyme replacement therapy actually changed the natural history of carpal tunnel in these patients
4: um, it's very difficult to tell i mean we've as exactly as just mentioned in the summary it is a small case series there um, it's difficult we cannot ascertain we can't do a randomized control trial, everyone was on the enzyme replacement therapy. So I definitely can't confirm that from that. All I can do is show the trends that we found from the cohort of patients that we've been treating.
1: Do you see any change? Do you think that it'll potentially change recurrence?
4: Well, we hope so. Um, I mean, the big thing that this study did show was that those that did have a normal electrophysiological studies, normal conduction velocities and distal latencies were, remained normal. 50% of them stayed normal after a follow-up of around nine years, while 50% of them progressed and eventually needed a decompression. Whilst everyone that did have an abnormal neurophysiological study at presentation all went on to deteriorate and eventually needed decompression. Now, whether that's the enzyme replacement therapy, I can't answer that. But it's a trend that I think should be shared within the community. Um, and hopefully with more patients, we, we might be able to show this trend in a bit more detail. But at the moment, I can't conclude that for sure.
3: This is Michelle James. That was It was a very nice study. Uh, for this condition and that treatment, this is actually a, a very large cohort, even though it's not a large mm-hmm. number of kids. So that's, that's definitely – and you had good follow-up, too, it looked like. Um, so you had a good um, – a good cohort that you could study. I, I have two questions um, coming from two different angles. It doesn't seem to me that your study changes recommendations for enzyme replacement therapy. That is still something you start as soon as the diagnosis is made, correct? And
1: Absolutely. It,
3: it And I don't know anything about it. So I don't know if there are dose adjustments or frequency adjustments or anything you might change to see if you could influence carpal tunnel syndrome?
4: Well, I, I, the, at Great Woman's Tree, enzyme replacement therapy is given to everyone. It is routinely given. It is the main so since 2007. Everyone is treated with it. Now on the same dose, and that is controlled by a metabolic team. So um, I don't think it is going to alter the dose, but something that we did find from the study was that it didn't matter how early we started the enzyme replacement therapy. So starting early, starting late, they still ended up with the same incidence. And that was, there was no significant difference between the two groups.
3: And then my other question is, did these kids also have trigger digits, correct? Correct. Um, So did you look at the incidence um, of triggering? I mean, I know it's a less, um, you know, you don't have deterioration as you could with carpal tunnel, but did you look at that related related to enzyme replacement?
4: Yeah, so unfortunately we didn't. We looked specifically at carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, We're completely aware. It's one of the things that we do watch out for in our clinics, but for this this particular study, we're specifically just looking at carpal tunnel syndrome.
3: Okay.
4: Thank you
0: very much. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Benan Dalla Ali. Um, So lastly, uh, but not least, I would like to welcome Dr. Chuck Goldfarb from Washington University in St. Louis. As he discusses his presentation, a comparative analysis of 150 thumb polydactyly cases using the Wassel Flat, Rotterdam, and Chung classifications. This study was a collaboration of the Congenital Upper Limb Difference or cooled registry uh, study group and using clinical photos and radiographs, five pediatric hand orthopedic surgeons, one resident and one medical student classified 150 cases of thumb polydactyly using the three different systems. Overall, high reliability was noted for both the Rotterdam and the Wassel Flat classification schemes with the simpler Chung classification being less reliable. The authors recommend the addition of a hypoplastic subtype to the commonly used Wassel Flat classification to improve its descriptive ability and to avoid the extraneous complexity of the more comprehensive Rotterdam system. Again, I will turn it over to our moderators and Dr. Goldfarb to discuss this work.
1: This is uh, Lindley Walligan. Um, This is a great study, and uh, we know this took a lot of effort, and it's provided really good um, assessment of these classifications. I guess um, in your presentation, you had emphasized the point of classification systems was to improve communication and also to try to guide surgical treatment. Do you think that there is a component of the polydactyly that is potentially not um, uh, included in the classification with regards to soft tissue um, structures that could potentially be included in a classification to improve our guidance with regards to treatment? It seems like most of the classification systems used here were all bony um, and leaving out that soft tissue component. Do you think there's still room to grow the classification?
5: So first, thank you for having me allowing me to share our work. And I would emphasize that Gillette Children's Hospital took the lead on this project using the CUD registry. And, you know, the, the question is a good one. And I think the complexity of the classifications really provides the answer. I love the Rotterdam classification because for someone who enjoys uh, classifications that delve into the details, the Rotterdam classification is fantastic. But there are literally 34,000 possible combinations. And that's just focusing on the bony issues. And so adding the soft tissue might make that unacceptable for some. Get a little higher than 34,000 and no one may may listen. Um, So I do. I mean, I think the point of the limitations of the Wassel flat are that I could describe a type 2. And we all have in our mind what a type 2 is. But if one of the thumbs is clearly hypoplastic, the expected intervention is different. The time for surgery is different. The recovery and aesthetic outcome is different. And so I couldn't agree more that the soft tissue matters. I think for now, we're just still focused on how to get our arms around the bony issues.
3: Check. This is Michelle James. I I enjoyed your paper, too. And this is, I mean, the, the could registry, I think, is just a really laudable effort, I think. Um, those of you who got this started and have just done an amazing job of, of gathering together a large number of really uncommon conditions. I should probably disclose that I'm very proud to be part of the could registry that I didn't have anything to do with this study. Um, I guess I, I have a little tiny quibble with you. And, and other than that, I think this is very very worthwhile. And that is the use of the word hypoplastic. If you mean hypoplastic, I mean, if you say hypoplastic, that means to kids' hand surgeons, a certain type of thumb difference that follows, you know, different levels as Blough, as Blauth laid out. And that, that seems to be partly what you mean here. Um, I guess on that, if, if that's the case, and you're really talking about thumb hypoplasia, we should be checking these kids for thumb hypoplasia. We should be doing renal ultrasounds and DEB, you know, I mean, that we should be saying they're part of that group and we should be looking for syndrome. So that's one comment. The other is that I think from looking at your presentation and looking at some of the photos, what hypoplastic meant when Hovius wrote that article was more just these weird thumbs that are only attached, you know, by skin, He didn't mean hypoplastic the way that we mean it when we're talking about thumb deficiency. So I guess I found that terminology confusing. Um, and I hope you can comment on that.
5: Well, first of all, thank you on the kind comments regarding the CUD registry. We're certainly happy you're a part of it and speaking for others involved. It has been a really impressive way forward. This study, in my mind, was just really um, cool, for lack of a better word, because they, we used the, um, the REDCAP database to share information on clinical and radiographic appearance and that's how we did this study at different sites. It was just seamless. It's a really beautiful way to do a study. So I'm proud of the way this study was carried out. I think your point on the use of the term hypoplasia is spot on. And I appreciate your work on radial polydactyly and true thumb hypoplasia, that is hypoplastic musculature of the thenar eminence and the MP joint, etc. And you are completely correct. We are not using the terms interchangeably. We mean a hypoplastic... Um, Radio polydactyly with a quote unquote normal residual thumb and if you look at Chung's pictures, the classification of which I was least familiar, he just draws a little extra thumb you know it's just meant to be um, not a situation where the two digits are equal in size and alignment, but rather where the second digit is simply smaller and more obviously the one to be treated with excision and reconstruction and so it's a good point. I'm not sure what an easier terminology will be um, because hypoplastic is used in these other two classifications, as you imply. Um, and I do believe that the suggested addition, the outcome of the study, is the right one. And I, I will get back to the co-authors on whether that is the right terminology to use. So I appreciate the question and the, and the uh, I guess, opinion. Thanks. Thank you. Uh,
1: last question. Um Do you think that we've gotten a little laissez-faire with regards to classifications? I think this was a good study that there's multiple people proposing their own classifications. Do you think that we as a institution um, should pay more attention to assessing our classifications that get published?
5: I, I think classifications are super helpful for trying to convey complexity And certainly early in my career, I used classifications to help me understand proposed treatment pathways. The further I get in my career, the less uh, dependent I am on using a classification. But I recognize the importance of classifications, especially in research. And so, you know, I don't, I guess, like seeing numerous classifications proposed and published because I think it can confuse the picture unless you get a study like this which allows us to potentially take the best pieces of different classifications and put it together for, um, I guess, an overall best. So, yeah, I think it's, it is an important feature of what we do in all of orthopedics. And I, I think it will remain important, especially for the genital hand surgery, because there's so much complexity that if we have good classifications, they really can share meaning in a way that um, words may not, because we immediately get a visual on a divergent type 4 wassail flat polydactyl. I think all of us immediately have in our mind what that means. Um, and that's helpful. So it, it, it is an interesting topic. It's an interesting question. And I think um, the more conversation we have, the more research papers we have on this, the better. Well, um,
0: I think that about wraps it up. I want to thank everyone, all of our panelists and our moderators for a great discussion. And thanks to all the POSDA members for tuning in. Um, so, once again, we have our moderators, Lindley Wall from Wash U, Michelle James from UC Davis and Sacramento Shrine, Roger Cornwall from Cincinnati Children's, uh, Ben and Dal from Great Ormond Street Hospital uh, for Children in London, and Chuck Goldfarb, also from Washington University at St. Louis. Um, and to our listeners, please subscribe to get the most up to date episodes from the podcast as our digital coverage of Posna continues. Also, please check out and subscribe to our cousin podcast, Interview with a PD Pod. Where we have continued great content from leaders in the field. Most recently, the POSNA Young Member Forum panel discussion was posted to give career and life advice geared towards our young members. And it has recently come to my attention that there is a podcast solely on orthopedic hand surgery called the upper hand which is run by our guest on today's show dr chuck goldfarb as well as his colleague dr christopher d both at washington university in st louis i think you can search this on apple Podcasts, wherever podcasts are available so if you've made it this far in the show you're probably interested in hand surgery and i recommend you check it out so once again thank you to all our listeners for joining us this is craig lauer from the university of north carolina wish i could have seen you all in san diego but please stay safe out there and Thanks we have learned that 34,000 is too many for a classification.
3: <laughs> it's not enough. It's not, it's not, enough. not enough. Back.
0: not Listen, enough.
5: We, we're hand surgeons. We like the anal <laughs> retentiveness of it all. <laughs> yeah. Good to see everybody. Right, good to see everyone.
3: Good to see you. Hey. Take care. All right, Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.